Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Hannah Strong. And I'm Sophie Monks-Kalkman. On the show this week, Wes Anderson uncovers some strange goings-on in Asteroid City. Annie Erno's life is committed to tape in the Super 8 years. And on the film club, there's a bad day of black rock. All coming up at Truth The Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, obviously, we try and get everything right on this, but we actually have two corrections from last week about Dion Edwards' pretty red dress. Uh, the film was said to be 150 minutes, but it's actually an hour and 50 minutes. And it's not adapted, but more of an evolution from her short We Love Moses, which is about a girl with a secret crush on her brother's best friend. And it touches on a lot of similar themes. So apologies for that. And Pretty Red Dress is in cinemas now. And We Love Moses is on Disney+. And I personally really recommend you check out both. But Sophie and Hannah, so lovely to have the gang back together again. Woo! The Venice trio. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sophie, what have you been up to of late? It's very nice to have you back. Uh, I've been staring into the abyss and sunbathing. So really (laughs) covering the the gamut of pastimes. Yeah, that's me. Does vitamin D help with staring into the abyss? Or, I mean, I'm wondering whether one might help the other. Yeah, vitamin D. Vitamin D makes you feel a bit more healthy as you stare into the abyss. You're like, at least I'm going to leave a, a good-looking corpse. Well, yes, that that's something, at least, I suppose. But, but this week is now, I mean, I suppose it's technically going to be the 21st of June that is the central point of the year. So kind of, I think, a good point to look back and reflect on what we've been given in 2023 so far. Anything that you guys think are going to make your end of year lists? I think the film, one of the films we're about to talk about today um, may well be up there for me. I think Asteroid City is, is a contender. Normally, I find a lot of the stuff that I end up really loving comes in the second half of the year. I don't know why that is. I guess it's to do with what an award season and when film festivals are. I was actually thinking today about Cannes and what I saw. And there's a couple of things that I really loved. Uh, Todd Haynes' May, December, Zone of Interest. But I mean, it's difficult because I'm never sure if I should rank these films by when I saw them in the year or the like official release date. So, you know, it's do I rank those films I saw at Cannes on 2023 or are they actually going to end up 2024 releases? These are the kind of really fascinating things you have to think about as a film critic that I'm sure will be so interesting to all our readers. <laughs> Listeners, are Listeners. <laughs> Sophie, what about you? I mean, aside from you being the person that literally wrote the book on Wes Anderson, has there been any other kind of real highlights? Well, I'm just going to make a bold swing and say the films I saw this year are the films eligible for my films of the year simply because I don't have the mental wherewithal to sort of figure out my life based on a different schedule so yeah unequivocally zone of interest just like an unparalleled event of cinema absolutely cannot wait for it to come out to watch it again to get stuck into it because it's an extraordinarily special and haunting film that I mean 
the abyss, the abyss staring I've been doing, like Jonathan Glazer's been doing it times a thousand. I'm just an amateur at staring <laughs> to the abyss compared to Jonathan Glazer and the team. So that's a real, real, I'd say not just even a film of the year, like a, a film of a lifetime. But yeah, to go right back to the beginning of the release schedule, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, that came out in January. That was also a Little White Lies cover film. I think, yeah, the films that I, I tend to remember and rank highly tend to be films that are doing something quite unusual and uneasy in terms of their remit and all the beauty and the bloodshed you know although formerly a documentary it is about so many different things and also like marries like deep squirming human vulnerability at various points in an artist's life with outrageous political injustices so yeah those are the those are the kinds of films that I really am like I don't know how they did it but I'm glad they did it what about you Leila what are you what are you what are you thinking of for films of the year well I'm kind of weirdly thinking about something else ever since you mentioned Jonathan Glazer because I'm currently on a, a little holiday with my family and I went to the beach today and I saw a child on the beach and I just thought ah Jonathan Glazer's under the skin has made even family trips to the beach despairing for me because that is a scene that I will never be able to get out of my head and changed my life in a bad way it turns out great movie now every time I go to the beach and see a child I just get really sad wow yeah Mm. I mean but on the flip side you could be like really delighted that you know when you continue watching the child and presumably nothing terrible happens to them you can be like really you don't know how bad things could have gotten kid on the beach Yes, but what about that baby in that film? I think I worry about them all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, there's not, nothing to be done for that one, I'm afraid. We must no, mourn it. Terribly sad. Um, but yes, I mean, I'm so excited to see um, the latest from him. I, I am prepared to have my life ever shifted. I mean, he's just, he, you know, he doesn't make a film terribly often. And so they do feel like proper event cinema. Yes, also closer to home and also on your very front, Rye Lane, a wonderful, delightful rom-com filmed on location and just not trying to subvert the tropes of the rom-com, just trying to be a really good rom-com and executing it in a like fresh and distinctive way. Like I think that that's probably up there for me as well. Yes, I mean, thanks for outing me, the, outing the fact that I do sometimes get merch and wear it. <laughs> but I promise you, I gave Rylaine a, prom- a very positive review long before they sent me this T-shirt. <laughs> I feel like now you've said that, it sounds even worse. It you could have just not mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there there's some in- interesting stuff afoot happening. I mean, we do, we've had this recent trend of all these superhero movies really underperforming. And then horror seems to be in a state of shift because like Scream did so well. And there's some really interesting horror films out Sundance that seem to be hearkening onto a new direction. The rom-com kind of a little, little bit of a resurgence with Friday, hopefully. And yeah, then a new Nicole Holof Center to uh, which is going to be out very soon which is going to kind of hopefully revive it even further because I, I love Jonathan Glazer but I also want to feel happy <laughs> mm-hmm. it seems uh, ambitious to me I mean well, we've got Barbie coming like I, I'm hoping that will be a real like I mean in the trailer she says uh, do you, you guys ever think about dying and I, I do think about dying Barbie so I'm excited for that <laughs> yeah that could be anything that film <laughs> We'll find out in a month, just, just literally a month. We're, we're, the mysteries will have been solved. Well, I've got to ask you one final question. Where will you be on Oppenheimer versus Barbie Day? Where are you allying yourself? Um, I'm, t- well, I'm both. I mean, I, I, I'm going to definitely see both. I probably will go to the press screenings and I'll probably go again because I, I like the movies and even Christopher Nolan, whom I'm a bit more mixed on, you know, I just, I like a big event cinema, I like watching things with a big packed cinema god i sound really weird i love being in a cinema with all these people um but uh no you know i like i like a big summer movie and even though these don't look like conventional blockbusters i love that feeling of everyone around you like reacting to a film and yeah no i i'm probably gonna go and see oppenheimer at the imax and at the bfi imax uh, why am i telling the listeners where i'm gonna be no one stalk me not, uh, yes um, yeah. the 250 showing on the saturday <laughs> Sophie, what about you? I mean, we're all probably going to see both, but if you were going to prioritise one, which are you team Barbie, team Oppenheimer? Well, I do feel like all of us have our integrity impugned by just simply trying to keep up with the cultural conversation. So it will be mandatory for us to watch both. Otherwise, we will be irrelevant. Um, (laughs) But if that was was taken out of the equation, 
uh, I do find Christopher Nolan to be a little uh, drab and humorless. And I do find Greta Gerwig to be a little playful and subversive. So I, I would most unequivocally be prioritizing Barbie. Not least as well, uh, Hannah and I have discussed this privately, our, our anticipation of a new guzzling. This, this man is a wry gift to cinema and it would be fabulous to welcome him back. Well, I've got to say, I'm, I think I'm Oppenheimer first because if, if only because of all of the memes of Killian Murphy staring off into the abyss in a way <laughs> that I, I can really relate to. And, you know, I, I, I was a huge fan of Tenet, but I, I think this could be something really interesting. And like, we're bringing the movies back. No more DCU. <laughs> It's all going to be kind of, you know, Prestige big biopics. directors. Yes. <laughs> We're going back to the time where Steven Spielberg's Lincoln made like hundreds of millions of dollars. I I would be very happy for these movies and maybe Mission Impossible as well to inject some cash flow into cinemas. I mean, you know, I think things are going a little bit better now. I think we're kind of on an upward swing theatrically from what I've been gleaning about the box office revenue. But we can always do with a bit more, you know, bombs on seats, particularly for independent cinema. Go and watch these movies at your local independent cinema and buy a popcorn and drink so they get the markup on those as well. <laughs> Hannah, you, you just sound like a show in cinema. Wow. I'm also, saying independent not- cinema. Go to You can see the studio movie, but see it in the independent cinema. And also see the independent... Just go to the cinema. That's, that's what I'm getting at here. Just go to the cinema. I would say go to the cinema maybe a quick Google look-see to make sure that they pay their workers a living wage and then have a great time. Yes, do your due due diligence. Say that again. (laughs) I'm not going to say it again. (laughs) Do your homework. Now, moving on to somebody who always gets me going to the cinema to see his latest. It's the new Wes Anderson Asteroid City. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Asteroid City takes place in a fictional American desert town circa 1955, where a junior stargazing convention is spectacularly disrupted by world-changing events. So, Sophie, as we previously mentioned, you literally wrote the book on Wes Anderson. How do you feel this kind of works within his oeuvre? Is this top tier for you? Is this kind of a kind of tribute to everything that came before? How did it sit with you? Well, I see his cinema as an evolving interest in both story and the art of storytelling. You know, like from Rushmore onwards, Rushmore was his second feature and it was fairly naturalistic compared to where we are today but it nonetheless it had theater curtains introducing each new month of the year and the next one royal tenenbaums it was like chapters in a book it's kind of gone and on and on and on like this and i think it's really moving because he's he's like when he uses these these frames these narrative frames it's not sort of a starched emotionless device it feeds into the emotionality of the in air quote central story because he's basically like collapsing the boundary between those things and being like these are real people with real emotions with real dreams who've come together to collaborate with other real people with real emotions real dreams to make something together and they they fuel each other and asteroid city is, is like i think a really incredible synthesis of those two aspects in a way that perhaps the French Dispatch previous film, although I enjoyed it, it did feel maybe a little bit less fluid because it was comprised primarily of of three stories, uh, you know, with with like a sort of prologue and an epilogue as per, but like there were three distinct stories and you you could kind of maybe like one more than the other two or two more than the other one, something like this. Whereas Asteroid City, it's like all of a piece with itself. Uh, You know, the framing device here, and I think we have to say this, even though it's kind of a spoiler and maybe best to watch it without knowing this, but the framing device here is like Asteroid City, that the story that we see in the trailer is is like, (laughs) is is the mind baby of the playwright Conrad Earp, played by Edward Norton, and realised by sexaholic director Schubert Green, 
played by the energetic and virile Adrian Brody. Uh, and so you, you, you kind of see, you, you see that those two and you see to an extent the actors and then you also just have the, the main film unfolding in, in Asteroid City. And yeah, I think, it, I think it, is, it is, for me, it is really, really up there. Like my, my favourite will always be Throughout Ten and Bounds, like for some reason nothing can touch that. I just can't even explain why. But this for me is is like the pick of the rest. It, it's up there with Grand Budapest Hotel and my personal one of my favourites that many people disparage, uh, Darjeeling Limited. Hannah, do you come into this with kind of a similar love of uh, the Anderson oeuvre? Yes, very much so. I think that's one of the earliest things Sophie and I bonded over was a love of Wes Anderson. And similarly, uh, my favourite of his films is The Royal Tenenbaums. I actually wrote an essay for Little White Lies. I think it was the first thing I ever wrote for Little White Lies before I was a member of staff about Wes Anderson's uh, broken families and uh, those from The Royal Tenenbaums and The Darjeeling Limited and how growing up with those films at a time when my parents were getting divorced was very meaningful and how I, I think I was sort of working towards an understanding of my own neurodivergence without realising it because <laughs> I was like why do I find these precise and orderly words so comforting and then some several years later I'm like oh wait a second but yeah I I um I love him I think he's such a deeply thoughtful and compassionate filmmaker and I'm always excited to check in with him see what he's up to and I was already very excited about this because I love Jason Schwartzman and I was just so happy about the idea of him getting another leading role in a Wes Anderson film he's always been you know in the films in this kind of like token role like um you know his, his other kind of players that he has like Bob Balaban like Bill Murray you know turning up in some capacity but um this one knowing that it was going to be him in the main role I was super excited about I also feel like Jason's a very underrated actor generally so it feels really nice to get him working with a director again who I think really understands him and um, they have such a beautiful kind of working relationship together so yeah that really got me going and then I love anything space and I think I was just very excited about the idea of a Wes Anderson sci-fi movie because that's again him challenging himself to do something that we haven't seen before and it all sounded so appealing the idea of them building the set out in Spain and I just was very kind of I had high expectations and luckily I think I saw the film for the first time with David and Sophie it was a really kind of lovely way to experience that and to be with two people who I know have a similarly strong relationship to Wes as I do and kind of all have this joint kind of like revelation uh watching it and from the first second i was so like spellbound by this i think the opening alone kind of i was like immediately like yeah sold you've got me <laughs> i mean it is quite an infuriating thing loving wes anderson in a way because it, it does seem like people are so determined to kind of box him in as to being like all style over substance i mean the number of kind of terrible recreations of his work that I've seen um, where she's like look AI can do Wes Anderson it's really not that difficult I mean that another reason to be angry <laughs> I think it just misses the point really it's not Wes who is style over substance it's it's people who don't understand his films saying that he's style over substance I and when you look at the AI generated Wes Anderson things or a lot of the TikTok kind of recreations you know imagine your life as a Wes Anderson movie they're taking the kind of tropes you know the symmetry the orderliness the narration and the kind of vacantly staring in the camera but not the thing they're not applying is the emotion and the kind of um love and the sadness and i find you get all facets of life in his movies and that is what annoys me is that people seem willfully ignorant about the kind of emotional layers of his storytelling and that is what annoys me more than the existence of ai it's just the kind of way that people are so willing to ignore so much of his work in pursuit of an argument which I don't think really holds up I love this vision of kind of Skynet blowing up the world and Hannah's yelling <laughs> into the abyss like and you didn't even understand Wes Anderson <laughs> well so part of the reason I'm feeling a little bit raw and existential at the moment is you know I'm like I'm actually working on a piece about Wes Anderson and how it sort of offers a safe emotional space for neurodivergence and um you know as part of this piece I interviewed treasured little white lies contributor Lillian Crawford who does a lot around access to cinema for people with autism and she was saying something and I was glad she said it so I didn't have to she was like in a way she kind of feels like and she was like I don't feel like this about any other filmmaker but sometimes when it feels like 
when people criticize Wes Anderson, they're like criticizing an autistic worldview because she was saying like what other people say is like, oh, it's so synthetic, it's so unrealistic. It's like, no, like to me, this kind of represents my emotional reality in, in, in a kind of way. And, you know, I, I feel like it's on, it, it, in a way, it's like water off a du- duck's back that so many people disparage him because so many people love him. And actually he gets the last laugh because he gets to make the kind of films that he wants and with the incredible talents at the top of their game and everyone wants to work with him because not only... Is he a visionary director? He creates like very collaborative environments in the sense of with the actors living together in the same hotel and like having dinner together. In the interview that Maya Hawke gave David Jenkins in our Asteroid City issue, she said she didn't pick up her wallet in two months. So it's like, you know what? He's creating these like little enclaves where people feel safe and cherished and able to do their best work. And if some joyless people are going to make snide and snarky remarks about it because they don't understand it, well, you know, they lose out because they don't get to suckle at that particular teat. <laughs> what a way to mm. end that comment. Sorry. <laughs> it's true, though. I mean, like, as a neurodivergent person myself, it's like there there are certain superpowers that you can kind of try and focus on the positives of, of just like, oh, I have this ability and I have this ability that a regular person doesn't have. And if one of those is appreciating Wes Anderson more, what a nice bonus. Right? Exactly. 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 But you mentioned um, this big ensemble, so I think that he, like the best of the best are willing to work with him. I think it was reported um, that like a few of them took quite big, significant pay cuts from their regular rates just in order to make a Wes Anderson movie. I mean, were there any highlights for you? Because I mean, this cast is stacked. Mm. So picking from the newcomers, so this is no slights on the old band, of which there are many. But my my shining stars were Steve Carell, never without his like little visor, because he played he basically he like looks after the hotel as it were at Asteroid City, so he's dealing with all these sort of queries and complaints. Whatever anyone says to him, he says yes, I perfectly understand. <laughs> he's like just so good, just very like beatific in a way and just as I said never without this visor apart from in one scene so he was phenomenal Tom Hanks all is forgiven from Elvis he is great in this he slots right in he has that like gravelly gravitas that I guess Bill Murray has historically filled in 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 the Wes Anderson verse but he also he he, he's Tom Hanks he's got his own stuff that he's doing and and it's it's quite fun to watch him playing a a grizzled uh grand patriarch because he is he is a grandfather within this also shout out to the three girls who who play Jason Schwartzman's uh daughters Cassiopeia, Pandora and Andromeda yes so various star formations they're just an absolute joy and delight um, so yeah, those, those would be my standouts. And I'll stop speaking before I actually just list everyone in the cast. Yes, very few duds in this. But um, before we move on, Hannah, I wanted to ask you about this like metatextual element to it, because it's not actually just a straightforward film about an incident that happens in Asteroid City. We sort of have a group of people that are performing it as a play at a different, um, at, at, on a kind of different metatextual level do i even know the definition of metatextual i hope that's correct um, but for you hannah did that work as well that kind of framing device of the events yeah i mean we know that wes loves a framing device um obviously in um the royal tenenbaums we get the kind of the storybook element and then in um grand budapest hotel it's through the lens of this journalist who is meeting zero who is then recalling the story of gustav h and the grand budapest hotel so he loves a framing device this really worked for me i loved it i i, I guess that i you know the moment I realised what was going on because it's very upfront I think when the movie starts you straight away get what's happening I was all in and the way that they managed to bring the two worlds together I thought was particularly beautiful because you're you're going back and forth a little bit between um, act one act two act three and the scenes within those acts and what's happening backstage and this is di- this is differentiated with the use of black and white so everything that's happening backstage is black and white and everything that's happening on stage is in colour which I think is quite a, a straightforward way of doing it which is good because God knows some Sometimes audiences need that kind of like very down the line. Here you go. Here's how you tell what's happening when. But yeah, it, it really worked for me. Th- th- there's a, a beautiful moment where Jason Schwartzman walks between the two worlds that I just, w- w- it really floored me. The kind of change in perspective of what we're seeing on screen suddenly becoming something we're seeing on a stage, I thought was just really creative and rewarding and realistic as well. Like everyone accuses him of not being realistic. I actually thought it was quite um, true to that idea of like, 
like imagination that watching a theatre performance requires. You know, they're making these incredible sets, but they're fundamentally trying to represent this amazing little town in the middle of nowhere on a stage. Um, so yeah, it, it really did work for me. There's some lovely little flourishes that I, I won't kind of spoil for the listeners. But just little things you see in the background, little details about who's kind of playing who as well. There's a few little, I will say, like nice little cameos um, from old and new West Friends that are quite small roles, but very, very significant and very charming to kind of watch play out. But yeah, there's just so many special things about this film and little kind of nuggets for theatre fans to enjoy. As someone who loves like theatre and film, it really was like watching all the stuff that's inspired by Elia Kazan and by Lee Strasberg with um, Willem Dafoe playing this acting teacher. It's just, yeah, I could really like nerd out about it all day. It's just such an immersive, and I use this word all the time on here, but like love letter to the art of telling a story through the art of theatre and filmmaking. Salzburg Keitel is Willem Dafoe's name. Thank you, Salzburg Keitel. Just I mean, they're great name. names. You'll have to, name. listeners will have to read Sophie's interview because she does ask, her, ask where's about um, naming his characters because he's so good at it I don't think anyone is on Wes's level when it comes to naming characters it's just those little details that kind of really make his work sing and I mean in this case I mean it's it's work not to just always be doing capitalism but like if you pick up the issue <laughs> it's really good and you get to dive deep into all of this stuff because it feels like there, there's so much there from every single name to every single kind of set design to you know the kind of little references and the lines of dialogue and the metatextual stuff but sadly listeners cannot listen to you guys talk about this film for 46 hours so we will get some scores on this now oh but but can I quickly while we're just doing capitalism can I draw readers or listeners in fact attention to the fact that our cover was made by an artist Ali McDonald who made it in felt yes in case anyone is a buyer of the magazine, which I'd hope you are if you're listening to this, and didn't realise what the cover was or like the material it was made of, yes, it was it was very lovingly made of felt, which is just such a kind of feat of artistry. And everything inside the magazine as well, there's some incredible model making which happened for the um, Wes Anderson space pod feature. Um, we're just so lucky to have, I think it's very true to the spirit of Wes as well, the spirit of Little White Lies in that we have all these amazing collaborators who are so on board for like just the craziest ideas and helping us really realize those crazy ideas and that goes in terms of illustrators and writers as well i think everyone is such a cherished part of our engine as much as they are of wes's engine and i spoke to adam stockhausen and myself a few weeks ago and talking to jason schwartzman both of them said this it's just such a joy to work on this in in this way i mean they call it a family they say you know as part of this machine where everyone is trying to reach the same goal and not only reach the goal but like surpass the goal and challenge themselves and it's like it seems like one big game of yes and with the words Anderson and, and I love that I think that's kind of what we've always tried to emulate also it's just you know that line from Royal Tenenbaums uh, spoken by Owen Wilson I was wanting to be a Tenenbaum I feel like we all just want to be an Anderson <laughs> that's true <laughs> Oh, well, some scores before we kind of all end up doing whatever the opposite of staring into the abysses. Sophie, do you want to go in first? In anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect. Yes, I was very excited because the only I'm only maybe a little bit agnostic about his animations. I don't know why. Maybe I'm not involved. Um, but I was very excited for this one as one of his live action films set in a single location or ostensibly set in a single location was incredibly hyped could not have been more hyped that would be a five yeah just had a real nice time with it as hannah said at that's this screening it was just the four of us and three out of the four were little white lights contributors we dominated that screening room five in retrospect hey look no surprises it's a five Oh, and you're a five. I'm always so glad when you get on here to talk to me about movies. But uh, Hannah, what about you? I think it was maybe a four in anticipation. Maybe it was a five. I don't know. I'm probably struggling. I think it, well, I, I'd heard that Bill Murray had dropped out and I was kind of a little bit like, oh, you know, what's going on here type vibe from that but I was so excited with Wes at this point now in my life in his career I know I'm 
at least going to enjoy it. He's not never made a film I haven't enjoyed, at least, even if it's not necessarily the best thing I've ever seen. I'm talking about The Life Aquatic, which I don't care for. But, you know, I yeah, so four or five, whatever. Uh, I'm not I'm I'm not on trial here. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> enjoyment are in, you? <laughs> I just, I always, yeah, I always hesitate before going five by five. You know, I always, I feel like I'm going to regret that at some point down the line. But definitely enjoyment in retrospect, it's, it's fives. I mean, I've seen it twice now and I adored it both times. I think it's such a special film and talking to people that loved it, it feels like a, a lovely little, you know, kind of everyone's got their own reasons for loving it, which I I really liked. And it's just so, yeah, I, I really could just talk for an hour just about this film. I think it's so special and so sad and so hopeful. And I just think, yeah, it, 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 it's a wonderful, a wonderful picture. And we're very fortunate to have Wes. Well, I will help you guys get together the Google Doc to pitch a show where you just spent four <laughs> hours going through each Wes ad. I'd listen to that. Like, you know how Mark Cousins does those um, documentaries that's just like like him talking about a filmmaker? Just one of those, but it's just Sophie and I, that was. Yeah, but it's like also like OJ Made in America. Like, is it a film or is it a TV <laughs> show? Because it's like eight hours long yeah. and it gets so deep into like every detail. Yes, King of Hollywood, if you're listening, make this movie. <laughs> Next up, it's The Super 8 Years. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The Super 8 Years is composed of home videos shot of Nobel laureate Annie Arnaud and her family from 1972 to 1981 and feeds into the themes of her work over the past 60 years. So, Hannah, I mean, do you feel like you have to have like a really profound understanding of Arnaud's work in order to really engage with this film? Well, I'm going to make a confession now and it may surprise listeners that I didn't really know who Annie Yono was until uh, I uh, heard about this film last year at Cannes and I felt like a bit of a... What's the word? A charlatan. No, not a charlatan. I like a charlatan. Uh, I felt like a bit of a... a... I think Sophie's saying what she thinks he <laughs> whatever, whatever a Luddite is, but for books. I felt uncultured not knowing who Annie Eno is. But like, my mum reads Ruth Randall books. You know, like this isn't... I didn't grow up in the world of Annie Eno. I grew up in the world of what kind of horrible thing is happening on Midsummer Murders this week. And that's a good word to be from too. You know, we need both to make our way, to make culture happen. Um, so, you know, I, I did... I had heard of Anya No because obviously Happening had come out and I think that was the first time I kind of became aware. I'm sorry everyone listening I know now, I've read the years and now I know who she is, I've met her, she's lovely um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm apologising What a, what a <laughs> quick descent from coffee. not hearing to someone to like oh and yes then we hung out <laughs> Yeah, yeah I know I know, people are going to be furious listening to this I was, I was given that opportunity No, I, this I, is very transparent of you, I think this happens all the time but <laughs> nobody ever admits it <laughs> i'm outing myself uh, yeah so i mean i i was coming from a place of not really knowing anything about earlier no this was my sort of introduction last year at Cannes when uh, it premiered and 
I had heard such wonderful things about her from, I think, both from Sophie and from Mark Ash and from David, who were all kind of very rhapsodical about her work, about her literature and um, what what kind of profound talent. And also I'd heard a lot of, oh, I think you would really like her stuff. And then I started reading her kind of magnum opus, which is this memoir, The Years, uh, which kind of is just about her life over a certain amount of time and about um uh, it's about her life but it's also about France and it's about yeah anyway I can't really do justice to what it is but anyway I did start reading the years and I cried reading the introduction to it so you know she is someone who is kind of a generational talent I think it's fair to describe her as and I actually think this is a really good way to be introduced to her work because it's 60 minutes so it's not like super, super in-depth. You get this snapshot of her life as a young adult before she was really a writer. It's her on kind of holiday with her family and with her in-laws at one point. And it's something that I think is actually, it's very easy to kind of put your own experience onto in a way. Like we've all been on family holidays. Most of us have probably got video footage of those. And I think watching this film, it made me think a lot about my own childhood, my own kind of memories of that time in my life. And one of the things that I think is so profound about the film is the way that she's filtering geopolitical goings on at the time through her like personal experience and the fact that like at the time it was like all these kind of micro things which were happening to her and happening in her family then had outside them all these kind of bigger things going on and the way in which she is able to reflect on those and kind of draw links between the two is so profound and so kind of clear-eyed she speaks with such a kind of as a perceptiveness but not like kind of naked sentimentality she's very um yeah I I think I just said clear-eyed but she is very clear (laughs) and yeah I I think it, it has such a sense of place and time and obviously the grain of the super eight is very beautiful and she made it with her son, um, which I think makes it feel even more kind of special. And Sophie, coming to it, I mean, I believe I was with you when we watched The Happening, which is kind of another autobiographical piece from Annie Erno. I mean, do you kind of see a kind of connection between those sort of two areas of her life, told in very different ways, of course? Well, the, I think this film is in a way a bit looser than her writing, which is, to me, The World in a Grain of Sand. The, the books that I've really loved by her have been um, there's one about her father called A Man's Life and there's one about her own girlhood as well and it's also contained in a way and like she's in that well-earned position but still enviable position of having had most of her work serialized so that they have the same cover just these beautiful white books with these these the blue titles and no images uh, and you know they're, they're these slim volumes and they're just so transportive and so detailed and the, the film isn't, yeah, it's like a bit more impressionistic in that way. And it sort of like blurs together different themes and, and you know, that you will that you will find in her work. But I, I think I haven't read the years. So maybe that maybe there is a bit of an overlap there. Hannah, you can you can say, but like the books of hers that I've read in a way, they've almost been, yeah, like not divorced from political events. She will recount the political events that are happening concurrently, but they're almost like portraiture in a way of the people. And yeah, and like, I think the film, you know, like all, fa- <laughs> like all, like all kind of like family footage of holidays is a bit more like fluid and, and, and loose. And in a way, yeah, like I think any way around is a good way to do it. I think if you watch the film first, it sort of, it gives you maybe kind of like a sort of general panoramic sense of, her her interests and her era eras I should say whereas if you start with the book then you can be like oh okay like it it zooms out a bit but yeah I don't know just hard hard to fault her really well I mean it's it's a very very interesting film I it kind of made me mostly feel hungry to dive back into the books I think I've only read two of them and you know when we have kind of one of these incredible living artists it does seem a shame to kind of as so often happened, wait until they pass before you do your deep dive. But um, yeah, certainly a, a well-deserved tribute and a well-deserved Nobel Prize because they often get that weird. <laughs> Hannah, do you want to go first with your scores? 
in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect? Yeah, I think in anticipation, probably a three, just because I say I didn't really know what was happening. I, I, I really am like going in on an apologetic tone with this one. But I think everyone's got to start somewhere. You know, we've all got our blind spots. Yeah, we've all got I our think blind the cleverest spots. people in the world admit when they don't know something. Well, thank and you it's for, actually the fools thank you for that calling me one of the they cleverest have expertise. I had it here first, folks. <laughs> but definitely a four in enjoyment and a four in retrospect. I think it's a very inspiring movie as well because I think it not necessarily the you know kind of content. I'm not thinking about you know oh wow maybe I too can become a Nobel Prize winning novelist. That's you know, you're the cleverest person in the world. Of course you can. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's not, what, not that yeah. that seems to matter much to the Nobel Prize committee. There have been some doozies. <laughs> Zing. Mm. If they're listening, <laughs> no. But I, I just in terms of like form and content, and I think to me, I it it really kind of challenged my idea of what a documentary needs to be and you know it can be something as simple as this kind of very lyrical essay about your life over some home video footage which is to me a complete amateur to the world of Anya no was still deeply interesting and moving and I um yeah I'm very grateful to her and um her son for choosing her son David I should say I'm just going yeah it was her son um her son David uh I know Brio, I believe, for sharing this with us. I think it's, yeah, it, it feels like a, a real kind of like flicker into someone's life, you know, a brief like snapshot. And Sophie, what about you? Yeah, same school as Hannah. I guess I like, I'm not going to take the stand in the same way Hannah did, but I wasn't hugely familiar with her work when I watched the sea for eight years. So I wasn't anticipating it that much. And unless Hannah and I are like lone infidels, this film may well be the gateway drug that compels a lot of people uh, or cinephiles like I mean it's probably not going to be like booking out the IMAX or anything but like that compels a lot of cinemas who knows the flash is underperformed so maybe people will <laughs> they'll fill up those screens who knows I would love to watch the Super 8 years in the IMAX surround sound yeah like give me those holiday snaps big and loud as possible I want it so yeah sorry to return to the point I was kind of mildly curious rather than like absolutely desperate to watch it but then yeah it like it is like quite rhapsodic and soothing at the same time as is giving you quite a lot of information uh in a in a way that is like very non-didactic and just sort of flowing so I really did enjoy it uh so four and then yeah in retrospect I think that feeling kind of stays with you and you you really it, it, it kind of like gives you gives you a bit of any know about you for a bit so that's an in retrospect for oh I think I think I'm at about a three three four I mean the thing that I really want to do is read a few more of her books and then return to it and see how it evolves with that perspective but yeah it's it's, it's in the same way that like I was so moved by happening it's you know, when somebody gives such a sort of incredibly intimate view into what is often kind of very difficult and very intimate moments, like you can't help but be intensely moved by it. And I will, I will be returning. But next up, it is Film Club, Bad Day at Black Rock. From the time John J. McCready steps off the train in Black Rock, he feels a chill from the local residents. The town is only a speck on the map, and few strangers ever come to this place. McCready himself is tight-lipped about the purpose of his trip, and he finds that the hotel refuses him a room, the local garage refuses to rent him a car, and the sheriff is a useless drunkard. It's apparent that locals have something to hide, but when he finally tells them that he is there to speak to a Japanese-American farmer named Komoko, he touches a nerve so sensitive that he will spend the next 24 hours fighting for his life. Now, that's a slightly longer synopsis than I would normally do, but I feel like otherwise we're going to get tied up in synopsis. I mean, Sophie, this is a very taut film. It's, I think, 80 minutes and a hell of a lot happens. Yeah, it's got this real Assault on Precinct 13 vibe where it's like, like nonstop, doesn't let up. And just to kind of touch on why this is our film club for Asteroid City. Yeah, the, both of them start with like a train rolling into town. But this one is almost like comic in that Black Rock is a real, like they, a train's not come to town for four years. So this train arriving, stopping and a man getting off, everyone is shook. Like the city grinds to a halt. The train has stopped and a man has gotten off. It's all anyone can think about, talk about the fact this man has disembarked from a train. And like, you really feel that you're like, wow. This just doesn't happen in Black Rock. A man doesn't disembark from a train. Not least a one-armed man. This is shocking. And it, it like, I just, it's at once incredibly taught filmmaking, building tension, 
But at the same time, it's it's sort of, you know, it is quite absurdly funny. It's such a seismic event, a man getting off a train. You're like, right, okay, this is not Piccadilly Circus. This is Black Rock. Different rules apply here. And yeah, it's like, it's not a film that I'd seen before, even though I do understand that it is a classic. And it's one of those movies and like that. And I was watching it from the point of view of a, of a Wes fan, because like, Wes does love those old Hollywood backlot movies and it's one of those movies where it's like it's so clearly shot in Hollywood because yeah there's just this sort of like grand vista backdrop where the clouds don't move you know actually just takes place in these little houses and then you know still the clouds don't move and the sun doesn't move and it's yeah it's a it's like it's like an amazing backlot vision of the west so I was really watching it kind of like thinking about how Wes is one of those few remaining filmmakers who does still love to trade on those old techniques like you know asteroid city was shot on location in chinchon spain however he's someone who loves to build miniatures and um, models and sort of use those those diy tactile aesthetics but yeah as as to the as to the drama and the story itself it's yeah it's like you know it's like it's pretty it's pretty straightforward these people have done some very bad things and uh, john j mccready is there to bring him to justice and they don't particularly want to be brought to justice so peril ensues Yes. And in many ways, as a wider society, they had to confront the way that the Japanese American community was treated during the Second World War, which does feel like it was, I mean, 1955, I'm assuming that was a bit ahead of its time, because I don't feel like those conversations were happening quite at the height of the Cold War. Yeah, I mean, that is, I mean, those are the stakes that he's there to avenge a man who's who's no longer there for reasons that slowly become apparent. Yeah, I mean, it's still very much like, the the white savior because like this sort of mysterious individual played by spencer tracy an indefatigable individual he's very much there to for for reasons that are sort of not particularly made clear on an emotional level like he's he's quite determined to risk life and limb to, to get to the bottom of this so it doesn't feel all too radical although i suppose again you know the talking about the climate we're in perhaps perhaps i'm being a bit um unjust i don't know it's a tricky one because, I mean, I love so many Westerns. I absolutely adore the film High Noon. But I mean, it's like, I guess if you do that whole thing, like we try and do with films and dig a little bit deep below the surface, like a lot of them are quite unempathetic and quite into kind of like a very individualist view. Whilst Bad Day at Black Rock did at least to me seem to be speaking to something wider and kind of advocating for like, greater understanding i suppose i think it's interesting so i mean the film is obviously it's quite old now it's 1955 and from what i understand about it at the time it came out the treatment of japanese um people in america after well during and then after the war and particularly japanese americans had been like atrocious and there was so much racism and i'm sure there is you know still to this day there's a lot of racism that asian americans and asians in america face but from what i understand this was one of the first films that kind of acknowledged that and like confronted that and it 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 seems still to be something that we're you know so little progress has been made in the interim to kind of address this on screen it's still something that like filmmakers are having to really fight hard to be able to get acknowledged and you know I, I I think that is um it's definitely one that like for its flaws at least it kind of did try and make some strides to kind of acknowledging this 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 great um injustice that so many japanese americans faced after pearl harbor to me it's kind of interesting that there is kind of this constant backlash of like you know i mean not from anybody that we care about but um you know that like oh you know these films are getting kind of too progressive and like to kind of like trying to like care about diversity and like i remember a time when men would be men and like this is like about as, as macho a film as it's possible to make <laughs> but it's still kind of i i honestly think you could release this today and there would be a backlash because it's like oh look at this it's trying to make us care about this marginalized community yeah you're right actually and also in terms of the different characters that are there there are some out and out totally remorseless sociopaths, zero regrets about anything that's happened. Then you have the people who have a more uneasy relationship with what's happened and their complicity in it and their silence. And when one arm Spencer Tracy comes to town, it, it sort of forces a, a reckoning with their own consciences. So in its own microcosmic way, I guess it has that sort of 12 angry men thing of like this isolated criminal incident then proving to be a gateway for different types of almost like avatars for different moral positions 
on a on a subject of huge national import. And it makes me wonder, you know, to link to the, one of the forthcoming blockbusters, like Oppenheimer obviously is, is building towards, I don't know if it's actually going to show what happens uh, with the atomic bomb. But I, I mean, I, I do wonder if Christopher Nolan will in any way try to, to broach that side of things or whether it will just be simply a like, pretty much a procedure about the development of the atomic bomb. Well, I will be watching it before Barbie. So if you go into Barbie first, I'll text you afterwards, be like, th- I'll just do a thumbs up, thumbs down. <laughs> like whether or not they engage with the horrific ramifications. <laughs> it's interesting because even in, even, even in Asteroid City, we get those hints in the background. We get the um, the atom bomb tests going on in the background in Asteroid City. You know, they, they, they kind of shake the, what's it called? The luncheonette, the diner where everyone's having their uh, flapjacks and coffee and milkshakes. And then we see later on Steve Carell's character selling uh, real estate in the desert by the vending out of a vending machine and i thought these like very small touches that wes has such a light hand and of course we thought obviously in um grand budapest as well with the civil war that's going on in the background i'm calling it now maybe wes anderson's asteroid city is the film of the summer about the atom bomb (laughs) (laughs) we shall see if if if, uh, nolan can possibly improve (laughs) <laughs> because the thing with Oppenheimer and it so it's ripe for including some aspect of this even though the timelines wouldn't necessarily match you know Oppenheimer famously disavowed his work he said I've got blood on my hands he refused to work again for the American government so you know it's stuff that like, again I don't really know what the purview of Oppenheimer is going to be but certainly subsequent to the end of the war he very much revised his position and questioned his life's work so it would almost be a dereliction of duty not to somehow feed that in somewhere Oh, I'm sure that's going to be in there. I mean, that's kind of the most interesting thing about Oppenheimer. Yeah. Yes. No, I have faith. I have faith. <laughs> I will. <laughs> You're going to get a double thumbs up from me, Sophie. <laughs> like, just like, not only did he address it, he blew my mind. <laughs> I'll be like, Chris Nolan has stolen Layla's phone and he's texting me. When will this <laughs> Yes, because like with Hannah and Annie Arnaud, we went from somebody who was like, had a passing interest to somehow hanging out. <laughs> I, you know, I did do a history degree as well, I must say. I think I mentioned it before on this um podcast but um i am excited about oppenheimer from that like point of view so uh, someone who knows i would say more than the average person about like oppenheimer and, person and, in the world. <laughs> <laughs> about oppenheimer and, and i am very interested in the history of um the atomic bomb and particularly how Oppenheimer really, really struggled after with the kind of weight of what he had been a part of. But yeah, I mean, we will see. But um, it's interesting that I I don't know how it's taken this long for us to get a film about him. I don't we're moving so far away from Bad Day Black Rock now, but... Uh. But no, but I mean, I think the reason that we take it's taken this long is because I don't know that it's easy to hear stories about yourself. It's kind of like, you know, history gets written by the victors when it comes to like World War II. We do get born into kind of narratives of like the bad guys and the good guys and all of this stuff. And like stuff that actually kind of subverts that and makes you think of like the humans on every side and like really engage with the suffering. I mean, it's that Mitchell and Wes sketch, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe we're the bad guys. We're the baddies. Yeah. No, we're going back towards the abyss, guys. Come on, we're going to get out. Yes, yes. Then let's get away from the abyss. People contain multitudes, and I think art thrives when we acknowledge that. But I want to hear more about what non-movie things you can recommend for people. I say people, I mean listeners theoretically, but I really take this as a personal recommendation. I've basically done all of them that have been recommended. Sophie, yours have been Chef Gets Five Stars. Yeah, all right. Then I see see how it is. (laughs) Hannah's have been questionable. (laughs) No, the issue is is that I am a neurodivergent queen and cannot play video games because my brain cannot figure it out. I I recommended a play. (laughs) i don't know sometimes you swing to the left sometimes you swing to the right what can i say anyway i've got more abyss content uh yay glad glad to know this one is a book called inventory and it's written by a man who was born in 1980 in Derry. as our history loving compatriots will know this was the height of sectarian violence known as the troubles but um Sorry, I did it. Derry in Ireland, not Derry as in the town that it comes to in Stephen King. I don't know about that town. I do know about Derry in Northern Ireland. I've not seen it. This is nothing, what I'm talking about is nothing to do with it. Stephen King's it. 
So we're in Ireland. We're, we're in Northern <laughs> Ireland, 1980 in, in Derry. The, the way that he is telling the story is really interesting because it's called Inventory and it's, each chapter is like named after a different object. And so, for example, it will start off something like a transistor radio that like his dad found at the dump and he brought back. And then there'll be the sort of the description of his dad bringing back the radio. And then there'll be like a bit more description of the family life. And it's sort of like building outwards like this. And then it will be like gas mask. And then it will be like his like grandfather who fought in the Second World War and was never the same again. It's like building up the story of a place and, and a family through individual objects. And it gets more and more and more like fluid and emotional as it goes on like there's there's some incredible lines in it that I was just like Jesus Christ but I, I went to read out one but I don't seem to have it on me but it was like um so he was I guess he was talking about at one point even though he was he was growing up in such a in such a volatile time at such a volatile place he was still you know this like little emo kid who loved to write poetry even if he was like risking life and limb literally every single time he went out with his friends he, he nonetheless made a decision that it would be worth to sort of make himself small so he was still like living the life of a, of a, of a teenage boy and I think at one point he his peers found his like little diary of like little poems and songs and like ripped him a new one and he was so upset that he went and set fire to it and then like the line is and I'm paraphrasing but it's something like like how he was mad at himself because you know no one can get you if you don't betray yourself but it's like way more eloquent than that so it's like this incredible it's like it's an, it's an incredible it's a story about a a volatile time in Northern Irish history that is like, I mean, is it even history? It's, you know, the the, the religious divide is still hugely felt in Northern Ireland. Um, but it's also like, you know, I think something that can get forgotten when we compartmentalise these events as purely historical as we forget about all the kind of like nuanced personal details of people's lives and the lives that people made for themselves. So, yeah, Inventory by Darren Anderson. Beautiful. And I just, I feel like I can almost hear the sound of hundreds and thousands of people storming to their nearest independent bookshop to pick that up after that. And Hannah, what about you? What are you going to suggest people check out this week? Well, it's not a video game, Layla. <laughs> that wasn't it. Think, okay, have this I, I need re- to have I been recommended a video I am game? not like one of those people who is like, I don't own a TV as if that is a morally superior position. I just have a weird hand-eye brain coordination issue. I, think it's, I am not above video games. I just can't do them. The thing here is I can't even remember recommending a video game. So, my new I don't version point has totally blocked this out. <laughs> Um, no, my recommendation actually is on is, is a thematic one um, because we've been talking about the desert and I am going to heartily recommend that our listeners go and see Oklahoma before it closes in London if you're lucky enough to be able to get down. Tickets are quite cheap. I think I paid £25 and I had a great time. I, again, outing myself as a total kind of culturalist heathen, I'd, I'd never seen Oklahoma, the film or the musical. So I'd heard a lot about this production, which is directed by Daniel Fish, because uh, it was on Broadway a few years ago. It was dubbed Sexy Oklahoma because um, it's kind of a spin on the original uh, Hammer, Rodgers and Hammerstein. And um, it does a lot of does a lot of new things. It does a couple of restagings. It, it changes the ballet into modern dance, which I didn't think worked that well. But I have to say, there are some changes they make to this to kind of rejig the relationship between Curly, who is the the strapping young songster who's desperately in love with um, this young woman who wants nothing to do with him and the creepy guy who lives in her barn who is also in love with her and they kind of reformat this in the original musical it is seen as a very he saves her from this creepy man and they kind of change it a little bit and it's a bit more ambiguous and it just works really well I thought the staging was really beautifully done it's very stripped back it's all kind of set in one location which is a barn and they make really incredible use of like handheld mics and a video camera in the production i'm must sound like a mad person explaining this over podcast but it is it's very very good and the ending there's a change that's been made to the ending which i thought was just devastating and uh yeah it's great it closes in september you should try and go and see it before arthur darville leaves uh so he's playing curly he's really good i only knew him from doctor who and i was amazed but he he has a voice on him he can he can sing he is so charming and he is leaving i think in july he's being replaced for the final few months but yeah it's really good really worth seeing and I also got a lot out of it in terms of now understanding Charlie Kaufman's I'm thinking of ending things a lot better than I did before well 
I gotta say, Hannah, you had me at sexy Oklahoma. <laughs> Any of the rest of that was just gravy. Ticket bought. I'm there. Go. Well, I've got to go before the before July ends. But yes, thank you so much. Those both sound wonderful, and we'll stave off my staring into the abyss for many hours. <laughs> the thing about the abyss is, if you stare too long, it stares back at you. So I've heard that. <laughs> yes, and I apologise if that's what I've been doing during this podcast. I do feel like a walking abyss. You could not be far from it. Where is it? You're a walking cornucopia of joy. <laughs> I think it's because it's my birthday tomorrow, so I'm like, I'm marching towards the grave. Aren't we all there? Uh, would the, would the, any of us were not? That is the direction things are headed, to be fair, <laughs> birthday or not. <laughs> Unless we get the Benjamin hey, a Button. A fun thought. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Unless Sorry. we start to Benjamin Button, great. <laughs> Crikey, I hope Bob isn't too depressed. <laughs> Sorry, Bob. Gosh, we've, today it's been atom bomb, the Japanese, treatment of Japanese Internet people. Dance. The troubles. I thought I was despairing after the flash. Here we are. <laughs> if you've got thoughts on these films, email Truth and Movies at TCO London or tweet us at LW Lies. Next week, Indiana Jones returns in the Dial of Destiny and Hannah fulfills oh, her destiny by talking to Mad Mickelson. A move to Paris is a family come together and fall apart in mother and son. At the film club, it'll be fascinated to see if the Temple of Doom has aged as well as its star. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Hannah Strong and Sophie Monks-Kaufman. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details